Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Dr. Jennifer Lavers, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, you're a bit of a big deal, let's face it. So you've got a, a very impressive resume. I'm going to try to do it justice. I'll probably do it poorly, but just, just for the people who might not be familiar with your work, you're a uh, research scientist at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies in Tasmania. And I'm guessing that's where you're calling from today, Jennifer? It is. It's nice and cold down here, just yeah. in case you're wondering. <laughs> you're actually a marine ecotoxicologist with a whole bunch of expertise in, in tropical and temperate seabird ecology, particularly plastic pollution. And I'm particularly, obviously, keen to uh, talk about that today. And I see you're sort of affiliated or your head researcher with a, a group called the Adrift Lab as well in Tasmania? Yes, indeed. So Adrift Lab is a relatively new kind of player on the scene, I suppose we might yeah. say. It's uh, myself, my colleagues, my graduate students, and we've been floating around for a while, as, as the name Adrift suggests. But we decided that about two years ago, we, there was enough of us and we'd been around long enough that we'd better give ourselves a name and probably something that made a little bit of sense. So um, a drift lab it is. And one thing you've done particularly, I guess, uniquely, as far as at least scientists go, you're very much in the sort of science communication area. And I, I've actually personally seen you, as I, I think many of our listeners would have, uh, you've actually featured in quite a few documentaries, uh, documentary films, such as A Plastic Ocean and Blue, both of which I think are, are free on Netflix, and also another one called Drowning in Plastic. So you're a bit of a, you're a, bit of a media celebrity. Yes. Well, <laughs> I've, I've been very lucky to be a part of those. We've got another one coming out in the next couple of weeks through ZDL, which is going to first come out in Germany and then go hopefully international. So we'll have to keep our eyes out for that one. We filmed last year, and due to coronavirus, it was a little bit delayed, as has everything in life. Yeah. Um, but coming soon to, a, well, not a theatre, but a television set near you. Very cool. And obviously, this is, we've obviously been impacted in, in, with COVID. So this is actually our third recording remotely. So I'm in uh, beautiful Brisbane. Jeremy's in Sydney. And obviously, you're in Tasmania. So the wonders of modern technology have brought us all together for this uh, wonderful chat. And it's actually, I think you're one of the our guests that we were keen to get on our show very early on by memory. I'm, I think it was- Did you stuff something up, Brad? What was that? Did you stuff something up? Did, did Jennifer <laughs> no, no, say no? no Sorry, was, I'm too busy. No, what? No, 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 I, 
I think we can blame my inbox, to be (laughs) honest. (laughs) I think we can blame the uh, 5,200 emails that I get a day. (laughs) Because early on, uh, one of our very early podcast guests, a beautiful lady called Lisa Dix from Sea Shepherd Australia. Oh, she's gorgeous. Yeah. And actually, as a side note, one of our, I think she is still to this day our highest rating episode of all time. Well, that's uh, so she's, she's a living legend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but very early on, she said, oh, you got to get, get in contact with uh, Jennifer. And you were moving and shaking all about the uh, planet. And I think at the time you were on your way to Lord Howe Island for a whole bunch of research. But uh, because of, I guess, COVID, we sort of managed to sort of, I guess, snaffle you for a, a chat now. So, look, Jeremy and myself both love a good backstory. And obviously, from your accent, we, we can tell you're sort of not a, not a local Tasmanian. You're actually from originally from Alberta uh, in Canada. Jeremy, have you been to Alberta before? I've never been to Alberta. I've done a, a season or a couple of seasons in Ben. Banff, and I've been up to Whistler. Well, hang on. Uh, isn't Banff in Alberta? You have been to Alberta. <laughs> oh, the Alberta, the state. Sorry, I thought it was Alberta, the city. Jeez, so that's in America. No, no. Yeah, Alberta yeah, yeah. is a state. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jeez, it's been a long you day. You've the best part of Alberta. It's been a long day. Trust me. I've been... I've been physically uh, this morning down holes, pulling it, maintaining uh, stormwater systems, pulling a bunch of crap out of pits. So I have been up very early. I do apologize. So yeah, I've been to Alberta and I love it. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, uh, I've been twice before. I've got very good friends in Calgary. uh, So shout out to the Calgarian friends and uh, and obviously Banff and uh, Lake Louise is beautiful as well. But uh, these are all beautiful locations. But how did you end up in, uh, nothing against Tasmania, I should point out. Tasmania is a beautiful place as well. But how did you find yourself in our beautiful state of Tasmania? It's a hilarious story, actually, in many ways, (laughs) as are so many of my stories. It's one of kind of happenstance and luck and just a fine dusting of madness. So growing up in in the prairie, the prairie pothole region of Canada, I have to confess that I knew almost nothing of the ocean. I didn't see the ocean for the first time until I was 21. And most Australians find that just yeah. Entirely unbelievable. And so I studied things like bees and ants and all of these kinds of things as a natural history biologist. And I, at the last minute, cast a net and moved to the remote east coast of Canada and flung myself out onto some really remote islands in the Canadian subarctic. And it's there that I fell in love with islands and seabirds and met a seabird for the first time ever. And it's a quite a funny story because the first seabird I really kind of ever met was something called an Atlantic puffin. Most people know what a mm, puffin yep. is. Yep. yep. So can I ask now, maybe you guys make me feel a little <laughs> bit better. How big do you think a puffin is? Oh, do you want to go first, Jeremy? Oh, <laughs> at, mate, at a stab, I mean, geez, I actually wouldn't have a clue. It's 10 inches high. Oh, no, I'd go smaller than that. I'd go for, <laughs> No, I'd have it. So for me, I guess this really is truly embarrassing then coming from a marine biologist. I thought they were about the size of a penguin. I was very, very wrong. They're about the size of an apple. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, they're very small. They're about 350 grams. Not that stupid, am I, buddy? Mate, geography's not my best, but, you know, <laughs> hey, math is. <laughs> so I, I'm happy to report. I guess the key message is I have learned my lesson. I fell head over heels in love with the little mini apples yeah. known as seabirds. And that is ultimately what led me down to Tasmania is 
opportunity to chase my newfound passion of birds and islands and remote areas and virtually the unknown. Tasmania back then on the Wikipedia page, this, you know, this is 15 <laughs> years ago, there was like two lines on the Wikipedia page. And so I saw that it never went below zero or very rarely and that it had this really pretty looking stone set of buildings called Salamanca. And I thought, oh, yeah, that looks good enough for me. I'll go there. <laughs> Cast luck into the wind and off I went. Wow. Extensive research. And and obviously you'd done your studies in Canada. So your, your undergraduate degree and your PhD. Is that right? Yeah, all of my studies were done in Canada. I did my PhD for summers in quotation marks in the Canadian subarctic on these islands with birds and polar bears and all kinds of wonderful things. And then I kind of started my career in Tassie. Straight out of my PhD, I was very lucky to get myself a research position at the University of Tasmania. Yeah. And I actually came down here to work on something called fisheries bycatch or basically interactions between seabirds and long line and, and other types of fishing mm. vessels to, to try and develop strategies to keep birds from interacting with hooks and nets so that mm. fishermen can keep doing what they need to do, but without harming wildlife. And so that was actually my first job here was working on fisheries related issues. Yeah, great. Because we actually had a great conversation just recently with a gentleman called Dr. Adrian Gutteridge from the Marine Stewardship Council. And we talk at length about, you know, mitigating bycatch, I guess, with a focus on sea life, like, you know, minimizing accidental catching of turtles, dolphins, whales. But we didn't really talk too much about birds. No, I we guess, don't do um, it. We do it. No. Nah. So obviously, uh, birds are uh, obviously at risk at bycatch as well. Yeah, it's as much an issue for seabirds as it is for turtles, whales, dolphins, mm. virtually anything. Some seabird species more than others. For example, some are what we call like quite gregarious and they actually learn that fishing vessels equal a free mm. and quick meal. And so they'll kind of follow them around and essentially sniff them out. Seabirds have an incredible sense of smell. And it's kind of that collision course of ship and bird that can cause a lot of trouble. And, and most fishermen, you know, they want nothing more than to keep the birds off of their hooks and out of mm. their nets. But the birds are very, very persistent. And so it's kind of coming up <laughs> with ways to stop the birds from doing what they want to do, which is to get dinner mm. and to keep the fishermen happy by allowing them to secure dinner without, you know, impacting them economically or putting them physically at risk. It's a battle, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's as much getting them on board and you know, you're going to try and convince everyone that this is a good idea. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard, you know? It is really hard. I'd say sometimes we're winning and sometimes we're definitely not. And I think consumers, individual consumers can do a lot. There are just like we've gotten to know that there's things like dolphin safe tuna. There are actually mm. different kinds of seafood in general that aren't just, you know, safe for dolphins, but are mm. also, you know, turtle friendly or seabird friendly or in general just have a much lesser impact on the marine environment. And I think if you choose to eat things out of the ocean, then you do have a level of responsibility to do some research and find out what it is that you're eating and what the impact is and whether or not there's something less harmful that you could be taking home for dinner each night. Mm. Jeremy and I love having a discussion about uh, 
eating choices and minimizing our impact, don't we, Jeremy? But that we'll, we'll save that conversation maybe for another day. We'll see how we go. <laughs> Jer- Jeremy gives me a hard time, Jennifer, for, for being uh, uh, an angry vegan. I think I'm not an angry vegan, but I'm, an, I'm a vegan nonetheless. I'll just let, I'm just I'm going to stay silent on it this week, Brad. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy's sick of the uh, uh, vegan hate mail he gets from uh, all my angry vegan friends. Oh, what, what, <laughs> what, what, the, what? What? All two of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but, so obviously you're doing a whole bunch of research in, in relation to bycatch, but uh, you've somehow uh, sort of, I guess, changed tack. I guess yeah, at some point. And focused yeah. a lot of your attention around plastic pollution and, I guess, ecotoxicology. So how, how did that happen? So it kind of happened in two stages. One is just prior to coming to Australia, I was actually living and working on an island called French Frigate Shoals. And it's a virtually unknown island, extremely remote. It's about four days sailing northwest of Hawaii out into the remote Pacific Probably the better known sister island is Midway, where Mm, people will have seen, you know, the photos of the albatross full of plastic. Mm. And this is back in early 2000s when nobody really knew much of the plastics issue. It wasn't the hot topic that it was. But I lived on this remote island with three Americans I'd never met in this abandoned Coast Guard station surrounded by albatross and was confronted by the plastics issue for the first time in my life by basically seeing all the plastic washing up on the beach and also the albatross coming back with bellies full of plastic. Mm. And I had this moment of realization, not just that the albatross eat plastic, but I knew that where the albatross were foraging in the North Pacific Ocean, that was a well-known seabird mecca, like a hot Mm. spot where albatross plus shearwaters and, and potentially a dozen or more species all kind of congregated and fed in those same waters. And so I had this light bulb moment where I thought, if the albatross are picking up plastic there, they can't be the only species. Mm. And so what I wanted to do was find another species that was in the same area to see whether or not they were also eating plastic. And so when I moved to Tasmania and started this project working on bycatch, I went out to an island called Lord Howe Island, which is halfway between Sydney and Auckland. And there's a, a seabird species there that sure enough, It lives part of its life in the North Pacific Ocean. And as I walked through the forest on Lord Howe Island amongst the breeding colony, there was, you know, bits of cigarette lighter and bottle caps and little toy soldiers and all of the things that I'd seen in Hawaii. It was like I'd been transported back to Hawaii, except I wasn't in Hawaii. I was in Australia. And so again, I had this light bulb moment where I realized that that species I was there to study in regards to bycatch, wasn't just suffering from bycatch. It was also experiencing the impact of plastic pollution at the exact same time. And so as soon as my position ended looking at bycatch, I immediately jumped on the plastic bandwagon and decided that that was going to be the focus of my research from that point onwards. Mm. And sorry, how long ago was that, Jennifer? That would have been 2007, a very long time ago. (laughs) To give away my age or something like that. <laughs> so you go, right, I'm going to change my focus of my research. How did you sort of tackle that? You go, right, I'm just going to, you know, just bang down another road. You know, what, what, what were the things that you sort of set out to do and try and achieve in the early days? That's a great question. I had all kinds of dreams and aspirations of what I wanted to do and the questions I wanted to ask and the priorities that I sought. 
research-wise needed to be addressed to, you know, kind of figure out where the birds were getting the plastic and what it was doing to them and what Australia needed to do policy-wise to turn that ship around and all of these kinds of like, you know, big, bold ideas. And the next, I would say, five to seven years were just the most disappointing, frustrating time of my life as I smashed my head against brick wall after brick wall. Because, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, plastics was not topical. Nobody, it wasn't in the newspapers. It wasn't focused on in documentaries. There was no funding. I mean, there still is very little funding, but back then there was zero. And so I would go and meet with politicians. I would go and, you know, apply for funding. And and literally I would get told, why don't you go and work on something that matters? And and so the work that I did in that that period of, you know, five to seven years was really limited. I didn't achieve much, but it's because I didn't have a paid position. I didn't have any financial support. I didn't have, in, you know, infrastructure. I didn't have labs. And I was literally using my frequent flyer points. I was using my own money to fly back and forth from places like Lord Howe Island to, to analyze samples at the lab. I was I was really struggling to keep a minimum project afloat for that long period of time. It was it was tough, but it was important. How'd you keep going? Was it just that underlying passion of this is an important issue? It needs to be appropriately addressed, and to do that, we need good or better science to actually appropriately address that issue. Yeah, I think so. I definitely felt like I could see down the pipeline of what was coming. I knew that plastic demand, consumption, production, I mean, you pick the the terminology and Mm. the answer is it's all increasing. Mm. And so I knew that what I was seeing then, back then, was just a glimmer of what was to come. So I I hung in there, but Mm. I don't really know what kept me going. It it was a really hard period of time. and, Mm. And did I consider giving up? Yeah, like probably a thousand times over. I think possibly it was, I have this saying in my lab that good science happens because of good people. And that's not a statement about myself. That's a statement about my colleagues. I have a handful of amazing colleagues, one in particular who, you know, if it wasn't for these people and this one particular person, I think people make or break your life sometimes. And and Mm -hmm. I think some really key people I've been really lucky to have in my life. If we can go back to, so you said sort of six or eight years of pretty crap time. What was the turning point then? Because obviously there's got to be a turning point. What was the turning point that got the hunger back in there and went, hey, we can do it? Did it come down to money? Well, we still don't have funding. Even 10 years on, we don't have any state or federal funding and never have for our research 15 years later. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, but true. I think it's actually a point of, it's not that we wouldn't accept state or federal funding. I think we've just chosen to look at our circumstances and accept it as a point of pride that we have survived in, in some instances thrived in the absence. Would we like to have it? Yes. But without it, I think we're really proud that we've hung in there. So I don't know that there has been like a complete pivot point where it's actually become doable or I don't know if it ever gets easy, but like it gets to, you know, where it's gotten to the point where literally any research question or project that I can think of, you know, I can instantly go, that's the priority. It needs Mm. to get done. Let's just do it. Mm. We are not there yet. Yeah, but, but finances aside, was there a, a point in time or was it a gradual thing where instead of being told, oh, this isn't an important issue, people actually started changing their mind and saying, oh, yeah, you know, the research you're doing is actually really important. Did that Was that gradual or was there a, a single documentary that came out on the internet? Or No, I think it, it'll sound kind of small and maybe a bit funny, but we published one of our, what is now kind of one of our pivotal papers in 2014, and it got into a good journal, but it wasn't, you know, anything earth shattering where people would stand up and take notice. And I was really excited about the article, but my two beautiful co-authors were kind of a little bit like, this is good, but they weren't as kind of pumped as I was. (laughs) I was properly pumped. I just thought this was going to be the bee's knees. And sure enough, the article came out. And for that time, again, you know, 2014 plastics was only just starting to pick up it kind of went boom. You know, we didn't have a media officer to help us promote it or anything like that. So for that time and for the facilities that we had, it went boom in a big way. And I got a a handful of emails from some researchers around the world who I held in very high regard, who wrote me and literally one of them said, I can't remember the exact word he used, but basically that this was like a turning point. It was like earth shattering and he was completely blown away. And I remember sitting and and reading this email over and over and over again. And I don't know that he, I've ever told him how I felt in that moment, but it was like a transformational moment for me. Oh, that's awesome. And I remember my colleague saying, I didn't believe that this paper was going to get this response, but you always did. And I don't know how you knew it, but clearly you did. And so I think for me as a person, and I think for us collectively as a team, that was a moment where we realized we'd hung in there and we were definitely on the right track. I should ask, what was the article about? (laughs) It was on the ingestion of plastic and whether or not we could show that there were negative effects on birds that you couldn't actually see with the naked eye. That's Mm. that's one of the big challenges Mm -hmm. in, in pollution science is that a lot of the impacts are actually really visible, like, you know, something Mm. gets entangled or there's a really, you know, graphic perforation from something really sharp. But those instances are actually fairly infrequent. Mm. And so if I put like my scientist hat on, as a scientist, we need to be objective and we need to be mm. quantitative. And mm. those infrequent events are not enough. They're not enough to make policymakers do things different. What we need to show is that the impacts are actually really widespread. And so for us, this paper showing that the impacts are actually invisible 
but that they exist and that they exist in the majority of individuals in a population mm. was huge. Mm. It changed the way we looked at the plastics problem. You don't have to see it to accept that it's there. Yeah, and, and, and I guess around that time, you know, and, and it's a similar story. I mean, social media, ocean plastic, really, yeah, that, you know, 2014, 2015, not really on social media like it is today. No. Like It's only really been in the last, I'd say, what would it be, two years, three years yeah. since, you two know, to two, three two years. to three years. It's really created, it's, it's now in front of politicians because it is in the yeah. news all the time. Mm. Um, and good science and good data is what you need. And that's the thing, like uh, plastic, as we've talked about before, is, is a very visual pollutant and it's readily understood by the community. And one of the, I guess we're living in the age of social media and sort of free to air documentaries. And, and I guess, to be honest, Jennifer, you've been a big part of that. Like you, like I indicated at the start of the uh, chat, you've, you've basically featured in all the, the top plastic pollution uh, documentaries that most people would be familiar with. And, and I, I guess just showing that story and, and showing the graphic images of albatross and other birds feeding plastic to their, to their babies and, seeing the, the carcasses of deceased birds with their bellies just full of plastic. I mean, it doesn't take a scientist to look at that and go, that is a massive problem. This animal, this beautiful sort of sentient being died and they died a very painful death as a, essentially a direct result of the enormous amount of plastic in their bellies as a result of the enormous amount of plastic in our oceans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... There's been a number of, of challenges that have come with that. One, I mean, the mental toll that that's put on ourselves as researchers, mm. having to see that day in and day out. The next challenge has been, how do you communicate mm. something like that, which is so confronting and so traumatic and really quite graphic as well, mm. in a way that is impactful and induces changed behavior it sticks with you it's not mm. just temporary changes mm. because everybody changes and learns and reacts to different things some need that graphic visualization mm. some really recoil from that mm. kind of visualization so that's been some of you know my challenges that I've had to also grapple with not just mm. the lack of funding and support over you know the last decade mm. and trying to keep this afloat it's been trying to figure out What's the best ways, plural, mm. to communicate this incredibly important issue to the broadest possible audience? So interesting you say that. Corey Hancock, the environmental cowboy uh, we had on a podcast. A really great chat. Lovely, lovely, super intelligent dude who's out there conveying the message. And he's got his guns out and he's, you know, you know, like you go on his uh, his website and, you know, he's, he's a good looking fella. I'll give him that, you know, but he's communicating in a way that's effective. People don't like pain. So they'll always go away from, from pain in their decision making process. So he talked about, well, showing how good it's going to be once we fix the environment and CO2 emissions and plastic and, you know, trying to show people that, you know, the good part of it because otherwise people will go to pain. And then to your point there, you've some people need to actually be smack in your face. This is what's going on. And they go, oh, I get it. To your point, it's got to be a mixed bag, you know. We've got to try and communicate yeah. this way, this way. It's like how do kids at school learn? They all learn differently. Mm. Um, we're going to do the same to the, to the public. I just think it's a really key message and uh, interesting to, to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think 
also, as a scientist, I take very seriously my responsibility that I am really privileged and I have the honor of getting to work with some amazing species, some of which are quite heavily threatened and declining, and go to some remarkably remote and protected places that are so off the grid and so heavily protected that they are not open to the public. And it's important that places like this exist on the planet where people aren't allowed to go so that they, you know, stay the way that they've always been. But I believe very strongly that people can't care about what they don't know about. Mm. They can't feel passion and engagement mm. to fight to keep that place pure, to keep it protected, to understand the value of something like that if they don't even know it exists as a dot on a map. And so I go to these places, you know, with journalists, with film crews, with my camera, with my notebook, with, you know, with data collection in mind, always trying to tell a story and to bring back beautiful imagery to showcase everything that we have that's left that's still very much worth fighting for. That always has to be part of the messaging. And I guess it's not just about messaging either and how we communicate things, because ultimately we're trying to drive change and essentially making things better. And that's where I think science is absolutely critical. If we are to make appropriate decisions around mitigating plastic pollution and other environmental issues, it needs to be appropriately backed by very robust science. And that's obviously where scientists come in. So I guess I'm just sort of keen to sort of delve into the detail around that sort of science. So before we go into the detail, just just generally speaking, uh, from your experiences, how bad is this plastic pollution problem in our oceans and how bad is its impact on seabirds? I think the honest answer is that the situation is critical. It's quite dire. You know, the quantity of plastic already in the ocean is so vast. Scientists struggle to put, put numbers on it. And when we do put numbers on it, those numbers are so huge that we and certainly the broader public struggle to even grapple with it. So, for example, I've had to come up with in some of my presentations, I, I include a photo of one of my favorite places on this planet to use as an analogy. And that photo is taken from Mount Wellington here in Hobart, mm. looking up over the night sky, and you can kind of see sort of parts of the Milky Way. And I always show this photo in my presentations, and I say to people, you know, why in the world would I show you a photo of the night sky over Hobart in a seminar that is entirely about plastic? You know, like, how are the two things linked? And the reason is, is that, and this is using an old estimate of plastic in the ocean, um, it's just recently been revised in a, in a new paper that's just come out. But at that time, I would say that the quantity of plastic floating in just the top 10 centimeters of the ocean is approximately 50 times more than the number of stars you can currently see in the Milky Way. Wow. And I think that those kinds of things are terrifying, but they're useful because you know, the estimate is that there's, there was at least 5.25 trillion, trillion pieces mm. of plastic floating in the top 10 centimeters of the world's oceans. Mm. Now, that estimate is, is out of date and vastly underestimated. But I always say to people, there's lots of people who, who would really struggle to say, what's a trillion relative to mm. a million, mm. relative to a billion, relative to 10 billion or 100 trillion? You know, like these numbers start to get so big that they become meaningless and we mm. can't allow them to become meaningless mm. because they, they're the complete opposite of that. And so 
That's the scale of the problem that we already contend with. Now, the challenges are that we have virtually no way of cleaning any of that up. So once the plastic is in the ocean, we pretty much cannot get it out, not at any meaningful scale, that's for certain. And then the other really significant challenge is the area that I work in, which is trying to describe the myriad negative consequences, almost all of which are are invisible. Mm -hmm. So, and involve things like microparticles and nanoparticles that are so small, you can't see them with the naked eye. You can breathe Mm -hmm. them in. They can pass something called the blood-brain barrier, so they can get into your brain. They can, you know, flow through your blood. They can pass through your liver. With those plastic particles comes things like chemicals. Those chemicals can leach from those particles into your body. How many of those chemicals animals and us are being exposed to and in what quantities and when and where and whether or not this is going to get worse with time and what those invisible impacts are, are so poorly studied, it's it's truly Mm. unbelievable. And so something I often say to people as well as another analogy to kind of make it make sense is think about in your life, everyone you know who has something like diabetes, heart disease, liver disease, really anything like that. And tell me if you can tell on the outside if that person has that condition. Mm. Now, this is a human who can go to a doctor and say, it hurts right here. Mm. I hurt. I'm not well. Well, a dolphin, a seabird, a tuna, They can't do that. So we don't know how much they hurt. We don't know where they hurt. And so the world's marine scientists like me are at an incredible disadvantage. Plus, we have no funding. And so I tell you this story because what it basically means is we are playing an enormous game of catch-up where the odds are stacked incredibly against us. And so whatever we currently think we know about the negative impacts of plastic, it is the tip of the iceberg. When you say it's a tip, I mean, I'm just, I'm gripped. This is just such a great chat and you're an an amazing communicator. I have to say, look, this is, this is awesome. It's terrifying though, isn't it? Well, it is terrifying, but. Look, I, I've just—I mean, I'm usually, so Brad, you know, usually Brad and I talk all the time during a podcast, but I, you know, you, you are the show. I mean, it's just—I feel like I could listen to your podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. But but when you say it's a tip of the iceberg, do you honestly mean that you're that like from a research point of view, that's how much we know, or the, the problem itself? It's both. So I think it's how much we currently know is is literally the tip of the iceberg. So for example, up until about six months ago, I published the first paper that showed the ingestion of plastic alters blood chemistry in birds. It's the first paper of its kind. And it, it indicated that blood chemistry changes in ways like, for example, if you have a lot of plastic in your stomach, oddly enough, you probably have high cholesterol. Mm. And this paper is the first of its kind, and it's only for birds. And it's only one study. So do these same kinds of negative consequences also happen in turtles, whales, dolphins, tuna, seals? You know, probably. But do we have any data? No, we don't. 
one of the papers I'm currently working on, which I just finished writing yesterday, I can't talk entirely about it because it's under embargo. <laughs> you know, again, it'll be a first of its kind paper. I imagine it will make quite a splash when it comes out in about three months' time. The results are so shocking that when my colleague Alex and I ran the analysis, we reran it so many times and in so many different ways because we were absolutely dead set convinced it had to be wrong. Wow. So the way that plastic impacts our systems, the ecosystem, which is so complex, is so complex. And scientists are only really just starting to dive into this head first in the last, as we just said, two or three years. So undoubtedly over the next 10 years, there will be thousands of papers that will start to show that plastic does X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, all these things that we never even thought of until some bright spark thought of it. And so we are currently drastically underestimating the scope and the severity of impacts. And so there's starting to be a little bit of a trickle of a community that seems to be getting a bit of, you know, groundswell, I suppose I'll say, of people who are kind of saying, look, plastic is getting too much attention. There's not enough data to show that it's actually as bad as people think. And so we should stop working on plastic and start wow. paying more attention to the things that matter. And, wow. and I hear this over and over and over again, including from members of the scientific community. I'm not disagreeing that there are other environmental pressures that are at point critical, like climate change, but it's not an either or. We mm. don't just study plastic or climate change. We can do both. We should do both. And we only know that climate change is as critical as it is because we've had 40 years of researchers mm. to tell us so. Plastic has had two or three. So to write it off as a non-issue is really premature and potentially very dangerous. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.